0: Hey guys, John Paulemy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, April 30th, and this is Weekly Market Update. The disclaimer, anything that you see or hear on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm just a guy on the internet with opinions. I am not a financial advisor. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money, it's your responsibility. Okay, before we get going, a few housekeeping issues. Um, I've decided to bring the reality check back. Um, I'll be posting it hopefully on Saturdays uh, or if it drifts into Sunday. Uh, The reason why I'm bringing it back is twofold. Uh, First of all, there's been a a big demand for this. People want to, uh, are interested in these, views or this reality check segment um, i don't want to put it on youtube for two reasons because when i take it off youtube and go to alternative media sites i can freely say what i want to say without worrying about the youtube ai um, dinging me secondly a lot of people come here and uh, to the weekly update videos and they just want to find, look at the, hear the financial stuff. They're not interested in my views or my opinions and that's fine. Uh, It makes it easier for everybody. You actually will have to make a conscious effort to click and go over there to listen to those. So the people that want to hear that or are interested in that or like that in the past, they will have that available to them and everybody else, uh, which seems to be the overwhelming majority, will just stick to the uh, financial stuff. and try to keep the political and uh, other personal views to a minimum. Now that's not me selling out that's just you know it's I had to compromise when I was adding it to the reality check to the YouTube videos because you can't say what you want on YouTube let's just be frank you'll be banned or you'll be demonetized or whatever it's just not worth doing alternative media is there they don't do that so we can have a free flowing thoughts without any type of filter uh, on those other those other mediums so uh substack i'm not going to bring the website back or the blog uh i got a substack going i'll put a link to it in the show notes i may take i may take the paid newsletter to substack i haven't decided yet um, but I am going to be posting more on Substack articles and things like that. If you're interested in that or if you were following the blog before, you can sign up below. Um, I'll also, uh, you know, uh, be, you know, writing occasional articles there uh, or, you know, um, promoting that. And again, uh, now that I have more time, uh, because I am switching jobs, uh, getting out of the field a lot, I'll have uh, more time off. Um, I hope to start interviewing people again, as uh, you know. I think a lot of people enjoyed the interview series we had. We focused on people, a lot of people that were kind of eclectic or weren't as well-known, and I think that uh, we had good responses from that. So I want to kind of bring that back also. I have several people that I want to interview and talk to anyways, and uh, hopefully that'll work. So that's coming down the pipeline. Again, we ask for your support. uh, If you enjoy these videos, if you think they have value to you. You know, support us uh, in any way you can. You can like, share, comment. Um, you can take a subscription to the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter, uh, which uh, basically reflects the investment themes, are reflected. What you hear in these videos is reflected in the themes that we invest, that I invest in and, and share in the newsletter. So that's that's something to consider. All right, let's get going for this week. So I I saw this chart, which I thought was great, on Twitter. Why? Because you know, in basically in blue here, you have the Nasdaq and the Fed's Fed Funds rate going back to like January of nineteen ninety-three, right? So almost twenty years, thirty years now. Sorry, and it illustrates something I've been talking about in the past. So this is the Fed Funds rate, you know, interest rate over here, and this is the Nasdaq. So. uh, you know, this you can see two things I want to point out every rate raising cycle, if you will, over the last 30 years, it peaks at progressively lower levels. And so this view that, you know, the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates. The reason why it's like this is basically very simple, because after every one of these bubbles, we had the tech bubble back here in ninety nine. OK. And. Uh, Instead of just letting the market clear, taking a, 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 a recession, letting the dross be cleaned off, letting uh, companies that uh, um, deserve to fail fail, instead of doing that, uh, Alan Greenspan, who was the Fed chairman at the time, decided to you know, come in and save the world, print a bunch of money, lower rates from about six and a half percent all the way down to one percent. And what did that do? Okay. That precipitated a housing bubble that developed and culminated in 2008. And you can see it's a similar situation to what we're in today. We had oil prices in, in 2008, you know, pushing $150 a barrel. We had, um, you know, all kinds of malinvestment, misinvestment in that housing bubble. You can watch the movie The Big Short if you remember that. Like I said, we've got a lot of younger folks on here. You might not even remember that or have a full understanding. But so that's what they do, right? It's just like then they raise rates uh, to stave off this uh, and to take away the punch bowl, I guess is what they say, and then you create another bubble in housing, and uh, you know then they have to lower rates again, right? So then they lowered rates to two thousand or to almost like below one percent, almost zero, like half a percent or something. And look what that facilitated, the mother of all bubbles, right? This was, you know, eight, nine years, eight, seven, eight years of basically zero interest rates. And look look what it facilitated, right? And so now, you know, we were raising rates again. And notice, like I said, each rate raising cycle does not... um, lead to uh it leads to lower it tops out lower so we had the taper tantrum or not the taper tantrum but the um repo thing and powell had to back off and then we had covid hit and then they you know crashed rates to zero and we had this like exponential blow off top combined with all of the fiscal um uh, money from the u.s government just created out of thin air and given to people and now it's all resulted in a inflation problem. So it wasn't, uh, you know, um, it, You know, as Milton Friedman said, inflation is, a mon- is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And uh, I believe that, you know, don't think that the government or the Federal Reserve can't create enough money to create inflation. They just proved that they can do that. And so now we've got ourselves in a big jackpot uh, the econ- we're in stagflation now. The economy is actually declining, if you saw the recent GDP numbers. And now they're raising rates into a recessionary, into a, 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 a an economy that appears to be heading for a recession. So this is really awesome, what they've done here over the last 30 years. This experiment is a complete failure. All this has resulted in is a... Um, Bailing out the banking system, allowing malinvestment and poorly run companies to continue, and making people at the very top more and more wealthy because they hold all these assets. They uh, all are on the on the same um, daisy chain of the Fed and the banking system, and uh, you know, taking it, being able to take advantage of this money that's created out of nothing, and basically free money, and. The consolidation of wealth at, it has begun or has been uh to a lesser and lesser number of people and that's how the system's set up and for most of us uh we're not in that club uh, all we can do is look at this for what it is and make sure that we are you know riding the same wave as best we can and so the other point i want to make on this is that all of this talk about, yeah, the Fed's going to raise rates seven times over the rest of this year, and they're going to they're gonna do this, they're going to do that. I don't think they're going to. I think what's going to happen very quickly, I mean, this is an election year, folks. The president is at like historic lows. They're talking about a wipeout in the Congress, and they're going to keep raising rates into a recession. And you think rates are going to get above the previous high uh, of the last uh, rate raising cycle? We think you actually think Rates are going to go to 3%, 4 5% to get rid of this inflation. I don't think so. I'm not buying it. And uh, of course, we can't know the future. Maybe they've turned over a new leaf. Maybe they're going to crush inflation. Maybe they're going to put us in a severe recession like Volcker did and get rid of inflation. I don't buy it. Um, uh, these people are inflationists at heart. They exist to do one thing, which is to create more money so that they can uh, bail out their friends in the banking system. And so the things that I'm tracking in the uh, that are my indicators, I'm seeing a, uh, a disparity, or starting to see high yield debt, which is junk debt, starting to go up um, fast. We're starting to see stress in the markets. What I'm saying in the debt markets, right, especially around these companies, the economy in the United States, basically in the developed world, cannot take higher interest rates. It will collapse. The debts are too big, uh, whether it's government debt. Whether it's the private sector debt, consumer debt, all of this debt that's been built up over decades is now coming home to roost. And you simply don't have the space to raise rates. Okay. Now, do I think inflation is going to stay at eight and a half percent? No. But I think it'll drop back, but it will still be at a higher than normal rate, you know, four or five percent, something like that, with bouts based on uh, however the Fed re- responds, where you could see things blow out based on, you know, commodity shortages, whatever. And so, uh, They've got a real problem on their hands here and uh to think you know we have a massive financial bubble that uh is at risk of collapsing if they get too cute and you know i just don't see uh them raising rates you know to four five six percent like back in the day you know back here you know 25 years ago and to really deal with inflation okay yeah, they'll probably, you know, I don't know where they'll get them to. I'm not an economist. I'm not going to sit here and try to make predictions, but it's something to observe. I just don't think with the way that the debt, the debt buildup has happened over the last, you know, several decades, that that's going to facilitate or be, be able to be maintained in a, in a normal, normalized interest rate environment. I just don't see it. So wanted to point that out. I think that, uh, and then, you know, that plays into our whole commodity play. The dollar, as you can see, is uh, strengthening. It's over 100 on the uh, dollar index. And is that is that because our economy is doing so well, and this is such a great place? I don't think so. I think it's a manifestation of the fact that we have you know, interest rates that are higher than in Europe and in Japan. Uh, so capital flows here, uh, obviously, so that drives up the dollar. Plus, we have basically World War III going on uh, for all practical purposes, and capital is going to flow to the US as it has before because it's still considered a safe haven relative to these other places. And I'm going to show you why that is here in a minute. Uh, one thing I want to touch on here is that uh, down here, you know, Jen Saki says that the US is not expecting food shortage at home. This is uh, interesting. Whenever they say don't expect something, then you should expect it because these people lie. That's what they do. They're professional liars. Um, I won't believe anything any of these politicians or their spokesmen say. Anything that the government says about anything, anything that the mainstream media says at this point, it's just false. Okay. and so this kind of this other guy, uh, cat turd here, Elgato Malo, he kind of said uh, something here in response, which is, I think, is how you have to look at this. I thought this was very prescient. You guys i kind of think maybe i've seen this movie before so after this comes food shortages are transitory then comes there have always been food shortages and this is totally normal and finally food shortages are good and you need to lose some weight anyhow anyhow fatso these sequels are not terribly imaginative are they no they're not and so we have a bunch of credentialed idiots uh that uh do not know what they're doing making policies and then lying uh, about the results of the policies and placing the blame on other people or other events. So there you go. Uh, the reason I say this is is because um, the Goya Food CEO warns, and I'll put an article to this. It was a Zero Hedge article. I'll put it uh, all references to articles in the show notes, of course, as usual. Um, we're on the press. He's saying he's the. You know, I don't know if you know Goya Foods. If you have a Ethnic section in your grocery store, like in Texas, we have an entire row of just like Mexican food. And Goya makes a lot of beans, black beans, kidney beans, all kinds of different type of um, ethnic foods, uh, specifically of a uh, Mexican uh, heritage. And so this guy kind of knows what he's talking about. You know, you should pay attention to this guy. He kind of knows. We saw him. He's saying we're on the precipice of a global food crisis. Yep, we are. Now, do I think that people in the United States are going to starve? No. Uh, prices are going to go a lot higher in the U.S. And in Europe, we have the ability to pay the higher prices. Yes, there will be food insecurity issues here among the lower income and children. Hopefully, we'll be able to step up and take care of that. But we will see we will see literal starvation in uh, developing countries. We will see people starve. You know, uh, Emmanuel Macron, who just got reelected for another five-year term in France, during the campaign, he said that you should, They should. Europe should expect to see another fifty to sixty million immigrants from the third world. Yeah, that's what's going to happen because when people are starving or economically disadvantaged, they're going to they're going to go to places where they feel that they can, uh, you know, survive. And so uh, I thought that was interesting. So we don't really know exactly what's going to happen, but we can see the knock on effects. And people, more and more people now are on this narrative that we've been talking about for you know a year. So, it's interesting to uh, see the confirmation. I hope it doesn't happen, folks, you know, but hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a plan. Um, we analyze the data and information as it is. We try to do it unbiased. And that's what we're pointing at. Uh, if you take away major growing areas, if you raise the cost of fertilizer and decrease the supply, we have an industrial scale, agricultural. Um, industry around the world that maintains the, enough food for the seven and a half, eight billion people on earth. And without those inputs, yields will go down and there will be shortages. So I wanted to talk about this uh, Japanese yen uh, kind of collapsing against the dollar. It um, looks like investors are losing faith in the biggest experiment in modern monetary history, i.e. Japan. Japan's yen drops beyond 130 yen per dollar for the first time in 20 years as Bank of Japan doubled down on bond buying. And so, you know, as the U.S. government or the Fed uh, begins tightening, so-called, and going to try to run off QE or get into quantitative tightening, uh, you know, with rates going up here, at least somewhat positive, even though they're still, in my mind, if you have an 8.5% inflation rate, buying a 10-year treasury at 275 or 3%, it's a losing proposition. But regardless, uh, that's what happens, right? And uh, Japan is doubling down. They just, there is no, the, 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 the Bank of Japan is the bond market in Japan. I mean, it just buys all this debt. And so what's happening is something that we've talked about for a long time. If you continue to create currency units, at some point, the currency will suffer. You can do what the Bank of Japan and the EU and the U.S. is doing, but at some point, people wake up and say uh, it's an aha moment. And you're like, wait a minute, uh, these people are have no other plan except to continue to increase debt and continue to just print funny money. And so, as you create more of something, the price typically goes down, and that's basically what you're seeing, you know, relative to the dollar here. Okay, you know, the dollar is not some major great currency. Like I said earlier in the video, it's just all this stuff is relative, and uh, right now um, the, as they say, to use a cliche, the dollar is like the cleanest, dirtiest shirt and a hamper. So that's where people are going, and uh, these things fluctuate. You can see over many, many, you know, years, and uh, you know, this is. Uh, I think uh, you know what happens if you break below that two thousand one, two thousand two low there. Um, this is crazy. And, uh, this isn't, there, there's no, ultimately, uh, at some point, does the, does, does, the yen just collapse? I don't know. I mean, it's really had a big move. This is a big move to have in one, in such a short time in the currency markets. As you can see by this chart, this is kind of almost unprecedented. And, um, this is a free fall. This is, this is not going to bode well for the Japanese economy eventually and Japanese consumers. So are we seeing more cracks and more tremors in the world financial markets? Yes. What are the knock-on effects of this? I'm really not a currency guy. I'm just pointing this out because um, uh, this is the ultimate end to years and years and decades of just printing money uh, and buying your own bonds. I mean, at some point, it ends in a hyperinflation if you don't put it in check and take the pain. But you know, in the West, we have created a sissy society that doesn't want to take pain, and so they just print money. That's what you know. The election cycle doesn't allow for real uh, changes to happen, right? If you're just a congressman there for two years, you're not, or president there for four years, you're not going to go step up and say we need to overhaul all of our entitlements. We need to cut the defense budget. We need to live with our, you're not going to get elected. People don't want pain. It's only after a crisis when you've been hit upside the head and you have no other choice is when the change happens. Unfortunately, that results, that's after all a lot of pain and suffering happens. So here's from an article in Japan. The Japanese yen slumped to the 130 range against the dollar on Thursday for the first time since April 2002 after the Bank of Japan maintained its ultra-easy monetary policy at its board meeting in sharp contrast to the U.S. Central Bank that has raised interest rates. At the end of the two-day policy meeting, the BOJ said it would conduct certain operations to purchase Japanese government bonds from financial institutions, every business state to stem a rise in long-term yields, and support the economy still recovering from the disease that cannot be mentioned. So they always have an excuse why they have to print money. Quote, the BOJ didn't just maintain its monetary easing, but in a way strengthened it by offering to buy an unlimited amount of bonds, unquote, said a senior researcher at whatever is this research institute so basically this is what's happening now um these things fluctuate it's i don't know if this is the final plunge to the bottom Uh, on i i certainly do not know that i don't have enough experience in the currency markets but i can tell you that this is uh, not good and so this is uh, a chart that i got from uh twitter and so you see the dollar rising in green here okay this thing's starting to go exponential and you see the euro and the japanese yen and then you see the chinese renminbi, um you know chinese currency uh you know so the dollar is like i said is is getting the benefit of all of these policy mistakes and or not not necessarily these are deliberate deliberate tactics by these other central banks and i'll just talk about the ecb in a minute and so you know this is all relative though it's not like the u.s is like you know uh the, the is not going to eventually suffer this fate it will but right now uh it's king dollar whether you like it or not and that's why you see gold not really reacting in dollar terms but i'm going to show you something that's interesting so talking about the ECB, ECB leaves rates unchanged at negative .5 negative .5%. They still have negative rates in Europe guys with producer prices at 30 or 40% in Spain, Germany, Holland. That's crazy. This is crazy folks. As expected, reiterates QE to end in Q3. Wow, we'll see. European Central Bank left its benchmark deposit rate unchanged at a negative 0.5% on Thursday, as unanimously expected by analysts. The Central Bank also reiterated its guidance that net asset purchases, i.e. QE, should end, should end in Q3. So they have, they have an excuse here, too. Here's the excuse why they have negative interest rates while they have inflation exploding in Europe. Quote, Russia's aggression in Ukraine is causing enormous suffering. It is also affecting the economy in Europe and beyond. The conflict and the associated uncertainty are weighing heavily on the confidence of businesses and consumers. Trade disruptions are leading to new shortages of materials and inputs. Surging energy and commodity prices are reducing demand and holding back production. How the economy develops will critically depend on how the conflict evolves, on the impact of current sanctions and on possible further measures. I mean, this is just this is like Mr. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, man. I mean, this is insanity. It's a lot of these things are self-inflicted by the EU. Um, whether you whether you agree or not, there are consequences to shutting off your energy supplies, your commodity supplies from your major supplier, i.e., Russia. They should have expected higher prices, and so the answer is just keep the pedal to the metal. I mean, this is just striking. It's like there's no, these credentialed people, these so-called masters of the universe that are the Davos people, all these people, this is their plan. You know, a lot of people are saying, well, they're deliberately trying to crash the economy. Wait till till the economy actually crashes in Europe. You don't think there's going to be unrest? There's unrest already. Macron got reelected in France, and the next day, he was making a victory tour through some uh, various uh, cities, and he was getting pelted by tomatoes. I mean, wait till the summer comes and when the uh, annual protest season starts in France and the rest of Europe. You know, other people that I've talked to said there's already protests in some of their countries. This is going to explode in, in an unknown way that I can't even forecast. Again, I have reiterated, I'm going to reiterate. I expect this decade to be one of unprecedented economic, social, and political upheaval. I think it's going to shock many people. And this is not going to be helpful. And so what do we see as they print more money in Japan, as they maintain this this aggressive war against their currency by printing unlimited units? Here's what you have. Here's gold, one-year spot gold in Japanese yen versus U.S. dollars. So over the last year, gold has appreciated 5.87% in U.S. dollars, but get this, 25% in Japanese yen. So it made a new high recently at the beginning of April in Japanese yen. Why? Because you're printing too many yen, okay? And people are going to, the, to gold to protect themselves from the, from the uh, effects of their central bank undermining their currency, okay? That's what people do. That's why, that's why you're, you saw it pulled back recently. But I mean, these, these, that's what these markets do. But if they continue to do what they're doing, you're just going to see gold appreciate. You're going to see hard assets in, uh, you know, that people can get into real assets as the narrative begins to shift in people's minds. And they start saying, wait a minute, the, you know, these people that are running the Bank of Japan only have, uh, there's only a one-way, one-way trip here, and that's to more and more monetary debasement. They have no other plan. Same thing in euros, again. Gold in uh, US dollars up 5.87% the last year, in the Euro terms up 21%. So you're seeing the same thing. It made a, a recent high back in um, February and pulled back, and it, you know, we'll see what happens if they continue to do what they're doing. And so people, people are going to react, investors, money managers, people react to these things. It's just not unlimited free lunch. And so, you know, this this is the response. Now, of course, like I said, the dollar and our people are flocking to the dollar, flocking to assets in the U.S., and so that strengthens the dollar relative uh, to um, these other currencies. And gold is a currency, so it competes with the dollar, and so that's why it hasn't. It's been struggling in dollar terms. But all this stuff is relative. These are intermarket relationships that you should be aware of. And again. When you debase your currency, gold does act as a preserver of wealth, as a life preserver. And that's why I have a certain percentage of my, of my wealth in physical precious metals that I control. And uh, you know, this is, this is why. You see this again. I showed this maybe a year or two ago when Turkey debased their currency. It's the same thing. As long as people have an outlet, they're going to take that outlet if they can. They're going to protect themselves. They're going to act in their self-interest. That's human nature. So, I wanted to talk about this some more. We're seeing really big moves in some of the tanker stocks. Uh, and why is that? Well, you know, the EU now and the United States and various other countries around the world, larger um, oil consumers are going to, are in the process or are voluntarily already banning the import of Russian crude oil. So, it's like I talked about before. The most efficient way for many of these countries to get natural gas and crude oil from Russia, which was fairly cheap transportation costs, was via pipeline. That's how things were working prior to the uh, Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. Okay, the sanction regime is put on, they keep amping the sanctions up in this uh, self-immolation strategy that the EU has. And so the demand for actual, if you're gonna, if you're gonna say we're not gonna import Russian crude via these pipelines anymore, then that's fine. You can do that. You still have the same, you still have, you know, crude demand is still there for various things. It's not, it's fairly inelastic um, until they crush their economy completely. Then it'll probably drop off. But in the meantime, you have to replace it. So you start saying, okay, hey, Saudi, hey, UAE, Hey Nigeria, hey Brazil, we need crude oil. Well, now there's no pipeline from Brazil or Saudi or the UAE or Indonesia or wherever you're getting this crude oil from, and so you require tankers. Okay, you require tankers to transport that oil. Okay, that's one facet of it. The other facet is is that there's a shortage of product. Uh, Jet fuel, diesel has been I mean, diesel is now over $5 a gallon in many places, heading possibly to $6 a gallon in the US. Um, and so you're having to move products around uh, where refineries in certain areas around the world are producing excessive amounts of diesel or jet fuel or whatever product, and then you have to transport it. So that's more ton miles. So here's uh, Calvin Frotage. He has this uh, tanker tracker website that he does. He's pretty plugged into what's going on with these rates. I think what people are missing regarding tankers is that a long-term structural shift has occurred. Russian barrels, crude and product, are not going to flow to the West in the same way for many years. This has seriously altered the ton mile profile he's talking about for tankers. Caught us totally off guard. So can this be the catalyst for the uh, rally in tankers, for the revaluation of tankers? Um, we've actually recently seen a you know merger um, of, of uh, Frontline with Euronav with John Fredrickson, I believe his name is. He's a tanker guy that you know basically rides these cycles. And he's also taking a look at another tanker company. So what you see near the bottom or a shift in sediment sometimes is merger and acquisition activity. So I'm getting more and more positive on the tankers. Um, again, supply is an issue because they've been in the doldrums for so long. Um, the aging of the fleet... The aging of the tankers, we've talked about that before, why that's important and what that means. You can't just run these things permanently forever. And then if we've shifted the entire, you know, the demand for these products, for crude oil and for these products stays relatively the same, but you've upended now totally the, trans- the most efficient transportation mechanisms from these pipelines to tankers. Well, then that's going to put stress and add ton miles uh, to the... Uh, to these tanker stocks. So it'll be interesting to see over the next quarter or so how this readjusts. You know, the, if you, the, the people respond to incentives, people make adjustments, uh, things will course correct. But that means things become less, if you're not going to use the most efficient forms of transportation, then things become inefficient and prices go up. Again, this is not deflationary, this is inflationary. You're raising the cost of transportation, which is passed on, to other uh, to the consumer, you pay in the end. These companies don't pay; they just raise prices and pass it on to you. And so, you need to consider this uh, uh, visa fee. You know, is this a potential catalyst for higher uh, tanker rates and then higher tanker stock prices? We shall see. I'm becoming more bullish on tanker stocks. So. Uh, this is another guy I follow this guy's on seeking alpha and on twitter i would or person i don't know this person never told me if they're a man or a woman uh but anyways it doesn't matter really good lots of data here's regional oecd end of month industry stocks this is uh, crude oil and um products total and so these blue shaded areas are like five-year averages and you can see the last couple of years uh you can see the range, and then you can also see the average and dotted line that you can see last year. Now you see this year. So you see, you know, days of product um, in the US of crude oil and products is falling still for, from last year. We're down to below 60 days. You can see the actual um, amount in millions of barrels. So that's actually like 1.425 billion barrels, something like that. Uh, same thing in Europe, and they had an additional uh, for other parts of the world, but I couldn't fit everything on the slide. Suffice to say, um, I you know, people have asked me, uh, am I still bullish on crude oil? Um, I'm going to maintain my bullishness until I start seeing uh, inventories climb. I'm not seeing that. And, you know, that can be a manifestation, not just of demand growth. You know, this, this commodity cycle that we're going to see, I think, uh, which i've said before it's not necessarily going to be an economic driven super cycle uh, uh, demand is going to cause you know prices to rise what i think is going to happen which i pointed out before and i and i've read in jim rogers book before uh, when he was talking about commodities this is a book he wrote like 20 years ago you know you can have commodities going up even if demand is declining how because the supply will decline faster and i think that may be the situation we're finding ourselves in is that the supply for various commodities may be declining faster than the demand may be co- coming down from um, uh, because of economic issues. So this is another example of why you can't just say, OK, we're in a commodity super cycle and I'm all in. You need to understand the nuances and the characteristics of what is driving these um, prices and uh, the, the variations. Now, it looks like it could be you know, we're not, we're not necessarily in a free fall because we're, we're, we're declining still, but we are still seeing maybe some stabilization. If we start seeing growth in inventories and there's a supply response because of the higher prices, which there will be eventually, you know, if prices stay high enough, long enough, there will be a supply response. We're already seeing the activity. I pointed it out last week. And uh, uh, with the results that we're seeing with uh, Schlumberger and Halliburton where they reported increased activity, those are the major oil field services players. And uh, we're going to see supply responses if prices stay high enough. And uh, if we're gonna head into a worldwide recession, I I don't know, I'm not predicting that, but that's always a possibility, at least recessions in Europe and US seem to be on the plate. These are the biggest economies in the world. Um, then we obviously will see a demand reduction for various commodities and oil. Will it be sufficient to overcome the supply uh, issues that we've seen and we were forecasting Uh, remains to be seen? That's why you have to watch what's going on. So far, so good. And we're starting to see results come out now from a lot of the oil companies first quarter results where average oil price was probably above ninety five dollars a barrel. And uh, we're seeing record amounts of cash flows being generated. We're seeing companies in Canada, recent uh, reports where debt is being extinguished. um, Dividends are being doubled and tripled. um, Buybacks are being increased. This is what we were hoping for. Uh, We just saw an uh, Elliott Management, which is a big activist fund here in the U.S., took a position in Suncor and is uh, wanting to see some changes there wanting to see uh, better management put into place to take advantage uh, of this uh, oil price cycle. So um, we are beginning to see the, 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 the results of the higher cash flows because of the higher product prices. And it's being rolled right into what we thought, you know, uh, debt being decreased and increases in dividends and share buybacks. So everything going as according to plan so far. So here's an interesting thing. This is why long-term you have to be bullish on energy, uh, regardless of the temporary manifestations of monetary policy or recessions in the West. In the end, the demand for energy is relentless, and if we are going to put uh, constraints on supply, it's not. It's going to be a. It's going to be a force the price up. Why? This is an excellent uh, tweet. I like it. I want to uh, include it. What's the world's biggest and most neglected problem? Three plus billion people, 40% of the earth's population live in energy poverty. Nearly 1 billion have no electricity and use wood or animal dung for cooking and heating. Energy poverty causes 10 million premature deaths a year. And so uh, as things go along, people are going to you know, want to uh, have better lives. Um, that's going to increase energy, man. The only way that you have a productive, increasing wealth in a society, increasing um, better standards of living is by increased energy use. It's just that simple. It correlates perfectly. It's common sense. And so if you're going to strangle the amount of energy produced, if you're going to go from dense sources of energy to less dense sources of energy, you're going to create um, lower standards of living and more issues around health and poverty and all of these uh, other unwanted things and that's just the way it is and you're not going to solve that with wind turbines and, and and solar panels i'm sorry it simply won't happen so that's a, a little commentary there but that's this is unmet demand folks and it's going to you know hopefully over time get met and we'll see though right because people in the west want less energy uh, less dense energy and less energy. And maybe it'll just be where uh, we, are, we are standard of living goes down while the developing world standard of living increases because they are interested in making uh, their lives better and exiting their energy poverty. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the, uh, I hope you got something out of this and enjoyed it. Again, like, share, comment, uh, subscribe to the newsletter if you feel inclined. Uh, subscription data in the show notes. That's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.